0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, November 13th, we're starting a new series on Sharper Iron. It is called Nothing But Christ Crucified. Starting today and going until just before Christmas, we will be studying the Epistle of 1 Corinthians. If you have ever been in a congregation that has had questions about Christian doctrine and practice, if you've ever been in a congregation where groups of people didn't always get along, then Paul's words to the church in Corinth should resonate with you. St. Paul first proclaimed the gospel in Corinth during his second missionary journey, and a Christian congregation was founded, a congregation that was enriched by the Holy Spirit in overflowing ways. But as is always the case when a group of sinners comes together, division and doubt attacked the Corinthian Christians. And so they wrote to Paul with questions about doctrine and practice. That correspondence from the congregation itself, combined with other reports that Paul received about some of the trouble that the Corinthian congregation was experiencing, that prompted Paul to write this letter, in which he places the congregation's focus squarely upon the power and wisdom of God for our salvation, Christ crucified. In today's show, we will introduce the epistle as a whole and study the first text 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor James Uglum. Pastor Uglum serves at Chapel of the Cross Lutheran Church in St. Peter's, Missouri. Pastor Uglum, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, it's great to be back and be with you. Yeah, so we get to talk about 1 Corinthians today. We're going to introduce the epistle as a whole, look at this first text. So, just get us started a little bit with some introductory material about 1 Corinthians. Let's let's talk about the author, the historical background, because this is one that we, we do have some pretty good information from the book of Acts to go on here.
1: Yeah, so uh, we can find a little bit about some of the background in Paul's visit to uh, Corinth and, you know, the people that he interacted with in Acts chapter 18, and... Um, You know, when you look at the sequence of Paul's relationship with Corinth as a whole, that's also fascinating in that there's uh, good evidence that, you know, that we probably are missing some letters from Paul to the church in Corinth uh, somewhere along the way. So when you sketch out Paul's uh, interaction with the Corinthians, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, he Uh, This is during his second missionary journey that he spends uh, quite a bit of time, uh, almost a year and a half there with the Corinthians, uh, teaching them. And as is the case in most of the things with the early church, it'd be fascinating to have a record of all of the things he said and did while he was there. But uh, we just get little snapshots of that. Um, We know that while he was there, uh, he spent some time with Priscilla and Aquila Uh, They were tent makers like him. And so that was uh, probably the primary way that he helped to support his ministry, uh, his work there um, while he was there. Um, And so somewhere after that first visit, uh, we have a detail from actually in this letter from chapter 5, verse 9, about a previous letter that was written. And then uh, we have this letter that is written. And then we have Paul making a second visit that's referenced in his second letter to the Corinthians. Um, as a painful visit, there is another, uh, two other references then to a third letter he's written and then the fourth letter, which we know is second Corinthians. So it, it gets kind of confusing, but essentially first, Com- first Corinthians is probably second Corinthians and second Corinthians is probably fourth, fourth Corinthians if you're judged by the numbers, but um, God in his wisdom has left th- us these two letters um, which uh, we have as, as God's Word to not just the Corinthians, but as we will see over the course of the next couple months, God's Word to us, the Church, as well.
0: Yeah, uh, that's right. So just to, to kind of clarify that, because that, there, are some, there are some pieces of the conversation that we don't have in mm-hmm. the record that, is, that we have in Sacred Scripture. As you mentioned, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul references a previous letter that he had sent So there is a a letter that comes prior to what we call 1 Corinthians. So this is is probably at least the second letter that he's sent. And then I, I think there's a little bit of debate among scholars as to whether or not there is a middle letter between what we call 1 and 2 Corinthians. Or if 2 Corinthians serves as that letter that is referenced in other places, or or sorry, 1 Corinthians references is is that previous letter that he talks about. So, but yeah, there's definitely at least three letters that he sends to the Corinthians, maybe four. And then there's some correspondence that he receives from the Corinthians that I don't think there's any record of that that we have at all from other than what we glean from what he writes in response.
1: No, and that's the the other thing that you'll see really quickly as we we dive into the beginning of uh, this book or this letter and we look at the general outline. Um, We have two references in this letter. um, One to some information he's received from Chloe's household that he spends the first half of the letter addressing and then uh, also a letter that he's received from the church in Corinth um, that he spends the second, really the second half of the letter Addressing And again, right. uh, you know, curiosity, we would right. love to have the full record to see the back and forth that goes on there, but we've got a pretty good idea of what, at least the content of some of those letters in the way that Paul responds in, in 1 Corinthians what, when he's responding to the issues
0: that those letters and communications bring up yeah that's right so you you mentioned earlier acts 18 describes paul's initial visit to corinth he stays there for quite some time that's his second missionary journey when he's actually there so uh, about how much later perhaps did he write this letter first corinthians to the congregation there um honestly
1: i am not entirely sure how much later this was um
0: I didn't see that as I was looking through stuff. I don't know if you caught that. Um, Well, I was looking in some of your notes, and I think the second missionary journey usually is dated sometime between 50 to 52 AD. And then he sends this letter as while he's on his third missionary journey, which he spends a good amount of time in Ephesus, so that it ends up being, what, about three-ish years later. These, these dates aren't exact, but mid-50s AD is, is probably what we're looking at. So, you know, he's, he was there for a year and a half, between 50 and 52, thereabouts. He finishes that second missionary journey, goes on his third, and then writes this letter sometime while he's on that third missionary journey, perhaps from Ephesus is what I had, had seen.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's true. He's probably writing from Ephesus. It's, you know, likely that he's sending, uh, Timothy to the church as well, uh, to help, help them work through everything that's, that's coming up here. Um,
0: Okay. So,
1: go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the, uh, it's interesting in terms of the dating for this letter. Some of the, you know, some of the letters we've got are easier to date than others. Um, this one, you know, is interesting as I was, as I was researching some of this, um, but, we, we do have um, an inscription at Delphi that was found um, that records Emperor Claudius uh, and his commendation. Uh, it reads essentially, you know, to my dear friend uh, Junius Gallio proconsul of Achaia, which is Greece uh, for us. And so then we could you know, kind of trace that and that's kind of how we can date this, uh, this letter to somewhere in the early 50s. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, again, outside of the letter itself in the early church. Um, the letter is attested by Clement, you know, 95 AD roughly. And so uh, then beyond that, we have those early citations of the church fathers. And so, you know, even though we don't have, you know, the autograph, the original uh, letter, we can be pretty sure, you know, we've got, you know, these records from within a few decades of, of the letter being written. Uh, Absolutely. That it's, yeah, you know, yeah very true for sure, and and, and, and that
0: so uh, that also gives evidence that this was received as sacred scripture from the very right. beginning, from the from the pen of Paul. So we're looking at not simply what Paul wrote, but what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. And I, I think as we get into this letter, we're going to see some of the uh, some helpful ways to understand the the process of that, how the Holy Spirit works through the the individual man without losing his character and even his memory, as, as we'll get to see probably in the next text, especially and in a few other places where you, you see Paul's own personality come through, especially in this letter. Uh, and it certainly is a very pastoral letter, uh, one that you, you see his pastoral heart. He cares for these, these people as he writes in response to the questions that they have and the struggles they're experiencing. Some of those struggles uh, really come from the fact of where they are in the city of Corinth. So this is is pretty important, especially for the letters to the Corinthians. Talk to us about the city of Corinth and the the context in which this church is is living and growing.
1: Yeah. So the city of Corinth is a is an interesting one. It was uh, raised by the Romans in one hundred forty six BC, and then a hundred years later it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar. Um, it was interesting. I found a, a note just in one place. So I don't I don't know how much stock you put in it. That uh, because of um, because of the the way it was raised, that it had they had to wait a hundred years for the rebuilding. I you know hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was about a hundred years uh, later that it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar. Uh, it had been a uh, very wealthy, well-to-do town, you know, before its destruction, and then after its destruction again, because of its location on the isthmus, there um, it was kind of a crossroads uh, between a lot of really important places. It was you know, all of the, the important seas that were around it, it was kind of a commercial hub. Um, it was one of the most populous cities in Greece at the time. And, you know, estimates, you know, range between, I think I've seen a hundred thousand to four hundred thousand, and that's plus or minus, uh, you know, twice as many slaves uh, for every individual. So it was a a very populous city as well. And it had a reputation in the ancient world not just uh this current iteration but the iteration before it was destroyed as um uh well for sexual promiscuity among other things um you know it had uh its main you know deity that you know they kind of ascribed to was aphrodite or venus and uh again this is more hearsay historically than uh, what we have real information for but you know it at one of the main temples, uh, they were saying, you know, upwards of a thousand uh, cult prostitutes that were at work there. Um, I've heard other people say, you know, when you look at the history of Corinth and, you know, especially Corinth at this moment, uh, it was kind of the Las Vegas of the ancient world. So that's probably the easiest way for us to kind of get a picture of the sense of the city itself and the cultural feel into which Paul is preaching this message of Jesus Christ crucified. Um, so yeah. y- you have that, and then in addition to that, you've got, uh, you know, the Corinthians, uh, like a lot of the Greeks, uh, they, they love philosophy, they love to debate, and so that becomes a big portion of uh, some of the background of the things that Paul is saying about speech and knowledge that, you know, kind of bubble up to the surface throughout this letter.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think I think the comparison to Las Vegas is a good one because there's, you know, there's that slogan what happens in Vegas stays in <laughs> Vegas and everybody knows what happens in Vegas that needs to stay there. And I think right. similarly in the the city of Corinth, you even have the the word Corinth in Greek being turned into a verb that yeah. essentially means to to fornicate.
1: Yeah, that's the the funny thing with this one is that it become it has such a reputation that uh, the very name itself becomes indicative of the kind of behavior that yeah. you would expect from someone there in that place.
0: Yeah, so so again, this is the context in which Paul is preaching the gospel, the context in which this congregation is, is living and hearing the gospel and struggling with those issues. We'll see some of that come to the surface in this letter. Now, we've talked a little bit about the purpose of this letter. Paul has has left the church. There's been correspondence from the church to him, Uh, and also from other people that are associated, he's received reports. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, without getting into all the details, in general, what are some of the issues that we're going to see surface in terms of the the purpose? What's Paul trying to address here?
1: Yeah, so uh, he's got essentially these two reports, which as far as you can tell reading the letter, this seems to be the the main impetus for writing it. Um, You know, he's responding first to reports from Chloe's household that he mentions— Uh, early on in his letter. And you can see, again, we we don't have that actual reports. We don't know what exactly was in it, but by what he says, it's, uh, you know, divisions in the church that uh, comes to the forefront right away in 1 Corinthians. It's issues of sexual immorality, uh, lawsuits among believers, so kind of how we interact as believers, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, moral defilement. So those are the main things he's he's addressing in that report from Chloe and then in addition we get uh, this note in chapter 7 verse 1 about another letter that he's received from the church and again when you look at what follows in chapter 7 through 16 so we're you know, we're kind of guessing how much that letter uh, brought up but it's issues of marriage it's issues of food sacrifice to idols and how do we live in in the culture and the, you know, the time period, the people that were uh, in, surrounded by its issues of women in worship and propriety there, uh, famously, obviously, his instructions on the Lord's Supper, uh, which becomes uh, the fourth place where we see, you know, see that, and uh, he really kind of gets more into detail on the, the practi- practicalities of how we as a church celebrate this meal together. Um, Again, very famously in 1 Corinthians, you get a whole chapter on the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, because you have people there, um, even those claiming Christ who are denying the resurrection, um, denying the resurrection to come, uh, possibly denying Christ's own resurrection and Paul's argument about why this becomes the pivotal thing for us as Christians, the thing on which our hope is built. and then he kind of finishes up with a collection for the saints and then he gives his final remarks. Um, so in a letter like this, it's really, when you look at, you know, kind of how it's structured and outlined for it, uh, it's difficult in one sense because it, as is, you're reading through it. It seems like he's hopping from point to point to point. But when you, you look at the two, um, you know, reports that he's addressing one from Chloe's household and one from this letter, that helps to provide a little bit of structure and context to the things that he's saying. Um, he's not just bringing up, you know, hey, things I, I thought about. It's the, here are the issues that I've heard you guys are, are wrestling with, and here's what God wants me to say to you about them.
0: Yeah, that's right. And this is, that's one of those places where you kind of wish you could see the, the letter that the Corinthian church had sent. But, but it's not hard to imagine what that letter looked like and the points that were brought up based on the way that he writes here. I mean, you know, you can think about an, an email that you got as a pastor with, question. Pastor, here are some theological questions I've got. And mm-hmm. you respond back point by point, which when you look at it as a whole, that doesn't seem like it's very organized, but it actually is. And so right. it's, it's not hard to imagine that with the, the letter that Paul's writing here. Now, you, you mentioned 1 Corinthians 15 as a key chapter and other passages that are, are important. Just in, in your pastoral practice and in your own Christian faith, what do you see as the the really key, very important passages from 1 Corinthians? Just, I don't know, pick pick three or so, something like that. Okay, so I, for me right now, I think the three I would pick,
1: um, one would be the divisions in the church, uh, just because um, of the way, uh, and again, speaking particularly to our church body, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the way we're structured and, you know, the fact that we wind up voting on synodical presidents and district presidents, it, it lends itself to that, I'm for this individual, I'm for this individual. And so I think this reminder from Paul uh, that really comes through in chapter three, you know, he, it's neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but God who gives the growth. Uh, so that's, I think, always a good reminder in the church because we tend to gravitate towards personalities. And Paul's reminder here is that the only personality we need to gravitate around is Christ. And we're all, you know, we find our unity in him. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, although it's kind of a cliche passage, <laughs> I, I do think that's important because in terms of what Paul is saying in the arguments he's making about our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, when he pulls that all back to this idea of love and again, not to, uh, to steal the thunder from whoever's going to get that chapter. But it's, you know, it, it does all come back to the love that God and Christ has for us and then how that love impacts how we love and treat one another. So I think that is another one. And then uh, if I only get three, I think the third one for me would probably be First <laughs> Corinthians 15, where Paul hammers home the point of the resurrection. That's just a really neat passage because Absolutely. we see in it, um, you know, he's making his case for the resurrection and it's yes it's on faith that we believe this but for especially for his generation they had the witnesses those who were there who walked with christ who heard him teach who saw the miracles and then who saw christ alive and and he even mentions that that there are some who are still living who have uh who were witnesses of that and it's almost like if you don't believe me go ask them um and, you know, obviously he hinges everything, our faith, on Christ's resurrection from the dead, that if he's not
0: been raised, our faith is futile, and we're still in our sins. But yeah. praise be to God, that is not the case. That's right. Christ has been raised from the dead, in fact. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I, I, I'll, just so no one gives you a hard time too much about picking 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> sure. I think, no, but the, that, the thing about that chapter, it, it, it has taken on a cliched role in some places. But that trio that he names at the end, faith, hope, and love, which is is perhaps most easily seen there in Paul, you find elsewhere in other epistles of of Paul. And we had recently in the three-year lectionary, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which some would say 1 Thessalonians is the first epistle that we have of Paul that he writes, perhaps. But in the first chapter there, you have that trio. It's not in the same order, faith, hope, and love, and it's not as, as obvious as it is in First Corinthians thirteen, but it's there. And you can yeah. find it in other places. So so for as much as that chapter maybe has become cliche in some contexts, there's some very important theology that Paul uses throughout his epistles. So so don't yeah. don't give up on it. I, <laughs> I would only know, I, add <laughs> I, I definitely chapter.
1: have not, but I know it's it's a tough <laughs> one, especially uh for pastors, it becomes an occupational hazard in that it is so often uh wanted at weddings. That's right um and there's you know there's something to it there it's it's poetic paul uh it gives a beautiful testimony to the love that god has for us in christ there so
0: yeah yeah i and to the to the the and again we could probably list all of the chapters if we started going through this i've always appreciated in first corinthians the end of chapter one where he very clearly talks about christ crucified and even in in chapter two that i resolve to know nothing among you but christ and him crucified as i've thought about my my pastoral ministry there's a lot there in in first corinthians 1 and 2 and into chapters 3 and 4 as well that i think speak very very much so to pastors in the way that we should conduct our ministry again not making it about us so that it's Uh not a personality cult but rather we're always pointing to christ and particularly what he's done for us in his death and resurrection to save us yeah no definitely yeah all right so with with that introduction in mind I think we've got a good place to to jump off into the first part of chapter 1. So again, this is an epistle, and so what we're going to see in this section are some of those very traditional things that you see in epistles of Paul and in other epistles of the day. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, call to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord." That's the text for today, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. So, Pastor, sometimes I've, I've talked about the end of the epistles like this, and I think the same is true for the beginning of the epistles. Sometimes this becomes the flyover country, of yep. the scriptures, that we, you know, we know what's there, and so we don't think we have to pay all that close attention. But when we do pay close attention, we, we see that there is quite a bit of significant theology in these in these sections. So just start us into that first verse where we find out who's writing. First, we've got Paul. Uh, what does he say about himself, particularly here, that we need to pay attention to?
1: Yeah, so as he introduces himself, he says, you know, hey, I'm I'm Paul, called by the will of God, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, Uh, and then he includes our brother Sosthenes, uh, who has uh, aided him in writing this letter in some way, uh, whether he was the scribe, uh, which is pretty common in the ancient world, um, or they talked through this as they were working through it. Uh, You know, those are the things we don't necessarily really know, but, you know, Paul, as he's setting himself up here, he wants the Corinthians to know that um, he isn't an apostle. Uh, that he has been called by the will of God. And so it's not just, I'm I'm any guy, but, you know, here's, here's who I am. Here's who God has called me to be uh, in this place. And when you look at the other letters of Paul, it's interesting in that he doesn't always introduce himself in exactly this way. And so in some of the letters, he introduces himself almost exactly this way, uh, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. In others, um, he does not in in uh, his letter to the Philippians he introduces himself as a servant of Christ simply. Um, in other places he you know he leaves off that uh, the designation designation of apostleship, um, and it, it could just be that he's introducing himself differently as he's as he's writing these. Um, it could also be with this letter in particular the in the nature of what is going to follow that he wants them to understand that he is writing this from a a place of an authority uh, in this early church, um, someone whom Christ has called into this position so that as they hear what he's about to say and the more difficult things that there will be to hear, they understand they're hearing it from one who's been called and appointed by God to do this, not just um, another, uh, another person who's giving an opinion.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think as Paul, you know, I think it's, there's a danger for us to to hear these words of Paul and think, "Oh, he's he's building himself up, but he's really not." And I think the right way for us to think about this is where Jesus speaks in the gospels where he he tells his his disciples that whoever listens to you is actually listening to me. And so by identifying himself as an apostle here, I think that is what should be brought to mind for the Corinthians that In listening to the words that Paul is writing, we're going to actually be hearing the voice of Jesus and that's who we need to be listening to anyways. So that's a a good place for us to take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor James Uglum this morning about 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
2: Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members, and church workers alike make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org.
0: Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, November 13th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-9 to 9 with Pastor James Uglum. He serves at Chapel of the Cross Lutheran Church in St. Peter's, Missouri. So Pastor Uglum, in the first part of our show, we were talking about verse 1. Paul names himself an apostle called to be that by the will of God. And he also names Sosthenes, mm-hmm. and he calls him his brother. Now, you said perhaps Sosthenes is one that Paul's discussing the contents of the letter. Maybe he's writing it down, maybe some of both. But just the mention of Sosthenes as brother here, writing to a congregation that's divided, I think that's probably, I think that's important.
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, Sosthenes, uh, what we know from Acts 18 is that he was uh, one of the rulers of the synagogue in Corinth. And, um, you know, Paul, as, you know, he's, is he writing this letter? He's identifying Sosthenes as his brother in Christ um, for that purpose of, you know, the people there in Corinth, you know, being able to hear him, hopefully hear him in a in a helpful way. Um, you know, you mentioned also that you know when you look at the you know these first nine verses of this letter, uh, like a lot of the letters that have that introductory greeting, Thanksgiving section, they kind of become flyable fly verses for a lot of us where you know we just kind of read through them almost like the genealogies where we read through the list of names really quickly and then get to the action and the uh in this letter in particular it's uh it's sad dangerous that we do that because we miss kind of the 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 overall character and purpose of the letter in itself so paul you know he's not just writing this letter because he's upset about the things that he's heard the corinthians are are messed up in uh, or mixed up in but which is true to an extent but in this letter you know this these first nine verses one of the things that stands out is that the character and tone of of these verses is one of thanksgiving Um, it's one where you see that in spite of all of the the junk he's going to deal with uh in the preceding chapters or the the following chapters that um, he's identifying these individuals as saints of God, those who like him have been called by God. And so he really grounds this in a place of um, really, you know we're all in the same family but here are some concerns I've got in the, which is very similar to how God deals with a lot of these things. Um, in Scripture, how we deal with things as a family, you know when when my kids mess up, um, when, you know, my son lies to me, uh, or, you know, when those situations happen, um, I, you know, I confront him. But it's never from a standpoint of um, you've somehow lost your place in this family. Uh, rather, it's always from that place. You are my child. Uh, you are my child, not because of anything you've done, but because God has given you to uh, your parents. And so now here's how we live in this family. And so... Uh, it's interesting when you look back in the Old Testament, Exodus 20, which is one of the places where we get the listing of the Ten Commandments, they also begin in that way, where God identifies himself as the one who rescued them from slavery in Egypt and then gives them the Ten Commandments. So in essence, God is doing the same thing. I have called you to be my people, and so now here's how I want you to live as my people. And so that we should read 1 Corinthians with that same mindset, that Paul uh, for all of the problems he's identified that they're going through, he still talks about their identity as being in Christ, as yeah. saints of God. Um, and that's, Absolutely. Uh, you know, for us, so when we deal with each other and we deal with the situations in our own congregations or in a larger synod, we do that with the same thing in mind, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ first. That's right. And now let's talk through the issues we've got.
0: Yeah, that's that's right. He he treats them as Christians, and and, and, yeah. and speaks to them and writes them as Christians because that's what they are. And, and absolutely for us in our life as a congregation together. And I think, as, as I think about this epistle, that's really where we we need to start as we think about this epistle is how does this apply to my local congregation and my life there? It's not that it doesn't apply in other places, like to mm-hmm. the to the synod or to the life across Christian denominations as a whole. But I think we really should think about it first and foremost in our life as a congregation. You know, when when someone in the congregation sins against me and it's going to happen because we're sinners, then to go to them as a fellow Christian. I think you see that in 1 Corinthians and certainly see it elsewhere in in the scriptures. This is this is a section that I I often reference when I'm teaching uh, youth youth and adult confirmation both concerning the third article of the creed that hmm. we say I believe in the holy Christian church. Yeah. You know, the Corinthians may not look like they are terribly holy or Christian, but this is <laughs> right. how Paul addresses them. And so they they are, I think, a good example of what that that we're confessing when we say, I believe in the Holy Christian Church. We don't always look like it, but yeah. through the grace of God, that's actually who we are. And so the scriptures are speaking to us in that light.
1: Yeah, and you see in these verses that character comes out where uh, Paul says, you know, you, you know we are um, not just... Uh, justified uh, in Christ, but that we are also sanctified by Christ, that it's, you know, God who is uh, the one who's, you know, enabling us, uh, who is strengthening us, who is sustaining us until the very end. You know, we, we see that uh, all the way down in verse 7, that it's, uh, you know, the, the primary actor in all of this, uh, as Paul is, you know, beginning this letter, is letting the Corinthians know that it's, it's
0: the, the work of Christ in you, yeah. not the other way around. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So in, in verse 1, again, Paul introduces yeah. himself, his brother Th- Sosthenes. Together they write this letter to the church of God that is in Corinth. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Like <laughs> We could spend the whole time probably talking about the rest of that verse. It's oh, I'm sure. <laughs> let's try to, I mean, maybe focus in, especially on the word called, because this is now the second time in the space of two verses he's used that language. Yeah, and what's interesting with this section is that
1: that idea of being called really bookends his introduction, where in verse one he says, Paul, you know, I'm Paul called to be an apostle, and then verse two he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, and so you know, it's not just me, Paul, who's been called, but you too have been called. You know, the vocation might be a little different, but the that call is is the same. And then he wraps it up in verse nine before he gets into the the you know the meat of the letter by saying, "God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord." And so, you know, he's he's bookending this section with this idea that um, our standing before God really is not. Us, it's not uh, on us. It's not our choice, but rather God is the one making those first moves. God is is calling us, um, and you know that's a, a pretty incredible thing to think about. That you know I may not have been called in exactly the same way as Paul. Very very few people I think can say they've been called in that way, and yet the calls that we have from God in our baptisms, they're they're no less uh, real. Uh, and no less efficacious than that call that, that Paul received um, and that all of the Christians, the saints before us, have received.
0: Yeah. So now the, the Church of God in Corinth has been called to be, let's see, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. So it is this church locally, but also a church that is worldwide. And And what are they all united under? They are all calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been called. And now we call upon the name of the Lord. Talk to us about the significance of calling on the Lord's name,
1: yeah, so I think for at least the Jewish audience that would be hearing this letter, so those who'd grown up reading the uh, you know the the Hebrew Bible for us, the Old Testament, that language would remind them of the prophet Joel um, in chapter two uh, verse thirty two there um, this is what's written so and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the lord shall be saved and so uh, for for them uh, for these christians as they're hearing this especially for those christians who are you know coming from a jewish background um, when they hear this language calling on the name of the lord jesus christ for them they're hearing that call back to joel and recognizing that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, the the one who is, uh, you know, the whole Testament is testifying to. And so there's that connection um, that when we're calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're calling upon Yahweh, uh, the name of God uh, in the Old Testament. All of the things, you know, in all of the ways that the people of Israel have called on that name in the same way, now we're calling in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that He's He's God in the flesh, God among us. Um, you know they're they're seeing, I think, all of those things.
0: Yeah, no, and I think I think this is a really big, uh, really big point because it, in the space of these nine verses, and I'm not sure if I if I actually counted all of them correctly, mm-hmm. but you see either you see Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ at least eight times in this section. Yep. And you see Lord at least six times. If I counted them right, there's eight Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, and there's six Lord, and like that's a lot in the space. And again, that's one of those things. If you're just reading through it, you breeze over it. You don't notice just how many times he actually names Jesus Christ and calls him Lord as well. Yeah. No.
1: For uh, yeah, as you're reading through it again, if if you spend more time with it and and uh, with this. Uh, these introductions, that's probably the most helpful thing. Same with the genealogies, is just to read through them and then to read through it again and slow down, because then you'll pick up those those nuances that maybe you don't see if you just read through it really quickly.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and just knowing that, that he names Jesus Christ that many times in this section and calls him Lord, then sets the stage for, as you said, when he really gets into the the appeal or the meat of the letter in verse 10, which we'll look at tomorrow, he appeals them by this name, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you said, connecting that to the God of the Old Testament, right, that's who you're calling upon. That's the one who's going to, to bring you unity. There's a really important point that he's making just in these first nine verses already. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So then in verse 3, we get more familiar territory, especially made familiar by the fact that many pastors pick up these words and yep. open their sermons like this. So talk to us about grace and peace. We hear about it all the time. Why do we hear about it all the time? Why is it so important?
1: Yeah, and so as Paul begins this letter again, like you said, many pastors begin their sermons that way. I know I do uh, grace, mercy, and peace to you from our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, and God Father. And so it's they're very familiar, is very familiar language, and... the the very familiarity of it, you know, is, is a danger because we can read through it or just say it rotely. But Paul is really saying that it's, uh, you know, this, this grace and peace is a gift from God. And as I was thinking about this in the last few days, I realized that, you know, it's grace and peace are, are two things that I think we all desire. So, you know, everybody, um, regardless of you know, the God we, we happen to say we worship desires grace and peace. We desire peace in our lives. Uh, we desire to be able to live uh, peacefully. We desire grace, or at least, you know, we, we like to, we would like for grace to be given to us if maybe we don't want to give it to others. But it's those things in particular that we tend to look for in the wrong places. You know, again, it's our sinful natures uh, just draw us to these things these, which are good gifts of God, but we look in the wrong places. So we, we look for peace, uh, you know, in a lot of ways at, at the end of end of a sword. Um, when we look for grace, we're looking for grace from others, but when it comes to us having to extend grace to others, we tend to be a little more tight-fisted with that. And what Paul is saying here at the beginning is that true grace and true peace are going to be found only through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that we can't find them any other places Um, and that's I think uh, something that's critical to kind of keep in mind as as we look through this letter because again we're going to see a congregation and a group of people that are at war with each other uh, a group of people who have received grace themselves but are struggling with how to give that grace to each other And so Paul, at the outset, he gives them this grace and peace from God, um, I believe, with the effect that they hear that and then recognize we've been given these gifts. And not just for us personally, but gifts to then extend to our brothers and sisters in Christ as well.
0: Yeah, and the way that you've said that I think is is helpful, too, because this is more than just... uh... A nice wish that Paul has for these these Corinthians. And similarly, when your pastor opens his sermon this way, that's more than a nice wish, but this is him giving you these gifts of God. Grace is yours, peace is yours. It's it's happening at that moment in the preaching of the word. And so what a what a wonderful way then to start a letter. He continues then, again, this is familiar territory. We've we've heard him mm-hmm. do this in many of his epistles. He gives thanks. Uh, talk to us about that part of the letter, and especially as it as it comes up here in 1 Corinthians.
1: Yeah, so he begins, you know, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And this is what I mentioned at the beginning of this section, which is that the character and tone of these first nine verses stands pretty stark contrast to what we will see as we read through the rest of it. Um, and I don't think when Paul says this, he he doesn't mean it. I think he really does give thanks to God always for them. And, um, you know, obviously there's going to be stuff that he's got to address and address very pointedly with the Corinthians. Yeah. Um, but he wants them to know, again, that he does truly give thanks to God for them, for the, the gift of grace that they've received. And, um, you know, whether it's pastorally, whether it's how we deal with each other in our own families or the family of our congregation, it's recognizing that as well, that when we enter into these moments where there's going to be disagreement and division and we're going to talk through things that, you know, I think, you know, we really should begin that time in prayer recognizing uh, and thanking God for the gifts of grace that, that we have, recognizing and thanking God that we are brothers united in Christ, brothers and sisters united in Christ. And oftentimes that will help us work through uh, the differences that we have. It's, it's not a silver bullet, but it's recognizing that when it comes to unity in Christ, that that unity is a gift of God and we can't look for it in other places. And so as Paul's going to go on to talk here, you know, it's not going to be found in, you know, simply the the use of human wisdom and logic and um, clever arguments that it it really is grounded in the love
0: that God has for us in Christ. Yeah, so as he gives thanks then for this congregation, Mm -hmm. as he continues into verse 5, he notes particularly that he's thankful for the way that they were enriched in him, so in Christ, Mm -hmm. in all speech and all knowledge. Why those two particular things? What does that indicate?
1: Yeah, so that's another one where uh, if you're reading Corinthians, especially whether it's for the first time or the first time in a while, uh, it's easy to miss unless you've got a commentary and you're looking at it. They make a little more sense if you read through Corinthians a number of times and you realize the things that he's going to bring up because what happens in these next few verses is he uh, he, he leaves little Easter eggs, uh, th- you know, reminders or, you know, kind of uh, things that are going to point ahead to th- issues that he's going to bring up to speak with them. So speech and knowledge in particular, um, when you think of speech, uh, tongues, um, in chapter 14, he's going to talk about the misuse of tongues and speech in particular as a spiritual gift and how the Corinthians are misusing it and how they should think about it. In the same way, in chapter 8, he's going to talk about the misuse of knowledge on their behalf uh, as they, uh, you know, contrast that the knowledge of God versus uh, love of God and how knowledge puffs up, uh, but love builds up, you know, very famously is what he says there. Um and when you look at those two things, you know, speech and knowledge, they are gifts from God. But it's a reminder, too, that uh, Satan is not creative. Uh, he takes these gifts that God gives to us um, and he twists them for his own purposes and twists us and our use of them as well. And so, you know, the, the gift of tongues, the gift of speech, uh, the gift of knowledge that we have, the ability to speak coherently to one another and create uh arguments and uh discussion points and to have you know have our words heard in a in a good way all of those you know satan takes those good gifts and twists them in the way we use them against one another and so that's a just a reminder too that as you you know you read through this recognizing that when paul addresses these these things later on speech and knowledge in particular uh, it's not that they are bad in themselves in the same way that uh like sexual immorality comes up a lot in this letter. God's gift of sex is a good gift. And yet we uh, like Satan find a lot of different ways to twist it into what God never intended it to be. And so, you know, Paul here at the beginning, he's going to speak positively about these things. He's thanking them for uh, how they were enriched in all speech and knowledge. But then later on he's going to deal with
0: how they've misused these gifts. Yeah, and I think even, you know, these two things, so keep speech and knowledge in mind, be looking for those to show up throughout this letter, certainly as we get into chapters 12 and following, but even as we get into later in chapter 1 and 2, the things that Paul says he resolves to know and the ways that he speaks, I think are are going to, to help set the stage for what he's going to say in this letter as a whole. Now, just to, to keep moving, so that we, because we're running short on time already, <laughs> sure. imagine that. Fantastic to, to spend such time in, in this text. Uh, talk to us about the, the spiritual gifts. that They're not lacking in these gifts, Paul says there in verse 7.
1: Yeah, so uh, verse 7, he says, uh, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait the reveal- revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Here, as in many of the letters of Paul, uh, it's hard to piece, you know, tease apart the full thought of what he's saying because his sentences are so long. But when you look at this issue of spiritual gifts, um, you know, it's going to come up in chapter 12. And so, this too is one of those little Easter eggs that he peppers these first nine verses with, a thing to keep in mind. Um, But he's speaking to the, you know, the church at Corinth together here when he says that um, you're not lacking in any gift. So he's not speaking this to individuals saying that every individual should expect to have every spiritual gift. Um, Rather, what he's saying here is that you as the the body of Christ together um, are uniquely gifted to carry out the mission that God has given you in this place. That does not mean that each one of you has the same gifts. Um, You mentioned, I think, before earlier that You'll you see this in Paul's letters where he oh, it was when you were talking about faith, hope, and love and how this comes up in his letter to the Thessalonians. When you read through the letters of Paul, you'll see him do this uh, over and over again. So whether it's with spiritual gifts and his illustration of the body of Christ, whether it's the, the armor of God, which, you know, obviously deals most famously with in Ephesians 6, but deals with in other places as well. Um, Paul is... Uh, pulling together these, you know, common themes that, you know, God has given him to share. And so here again, you know, this is kind of our Easter egg about, you know, things to come in terms of spiritual gifts, but it's a reminder that again, when you, you know, we look at the body of Christ in our own congregations, especially the fact that we have different gifts, the sinful side of us, you know, it takes that fact of the different giftedness, uh, that we experience and you know satan will use that to create jealousy um to create hierarchies some gifts are better than others and i'm more important than you because i have this special gift um and you know paul's saying in all of this no this is not how we should view these things rather uh, as the collective body of christ we're all gifted in different ways and we should be rejoicing in those differences and and uh, elevating uh, these these different individuals these different parts of the
0: body of Christ uh, for their integral role we got about three minutes here for the, okay. the rest of this text no and that, that's okay yeah. because I do think that these last several verses they they start to go together and and one yep. thing that maybe again if, if we read through this quickly we miss is Paul actually already here at the beginning of the epistle is making us think about the end he's making us think about the last day which is where he's going to get toward, at the very end of this epistle, he's going to close with, come Lord Jesus, that's going to be at the very end. So we're, yeah. we're always looking forward to that last day. And we see that that end times focus already here. So show us that end times focus in these these verses and point to us the, the importance for us as, as Christians, thinking, you know, waiting for this revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ with about three minutes to, to wrap things up. All right, I'll
1: do my best. So Uh, Again, looking at verse 7, really starting at verse 8, when he goes on to say that um, we're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the end of verse 7. Who will sustain you to the end? So we're waiting for the revealing. Uh, We know that Christ is going to sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that that phrase, in the day of the Lord, uh, as we read through the scriptures, uh, many times is a reference to that final day uh, when Christ will come again. Um, And he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, just in those two verses, uh, you see how often that our Lord Jesus Christ is repeated. But all of it is meant to point the the vision of the Corinthians and us away, I think, from the, the problems, the mess of our current world, and even the mess in our own congregations and church. Um, to what we have to look forward to as brothers and sisters in Christ, which is uh, Christ's final coming, um, the restoration of all things, you know, the culmination of God's work in Christ. All of that is to come. And again, this is one of those Easter eggs in these first nine verses where, you know, at the very end of Paul's letter in uh, chapter 15, he'll talk about the resurrection and the resurrection to come. At the end of his letter, you know, that, that phrasing, come Lord Jesus, uh, that we get. But all of it is meant to point us to the fact that all of our struggles, all of the the mess of this world that we experience here, so often we get we get caught up in it, but it's a reminder that what is to come is what we should be
0: focusing on uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, because we're, we're all waiting for that day together. And then having that focus, I think, on the end then, helps us to to put the struggles, the differences, the sins that we commit against each other into the proper perspective, knowing that we are waiting for our Lord to come to make all things right, and he comes as the one who is our crucified Savior, the one who has shed his blood in our place, and he has risen from the dead to be our, our Savior. Pastor James Uglum serves at Chapel of the Cross Lutheran Church in St. Peter's, Missouri, He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Pastor Uglum, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. The church in Corinth had its problems, to be sure, and yet St. Paul writes to them as Christians. We as Christians have our problems, to be sure, and yet we are Christians by the grace of God. This letter will keep our focus on that grace of God that has been shown to us in our Lord Jesus Christ on whose name we call, for he is our crucified Savior, the power and wisdom of God to bring us salvation now and on the last day as we wait for him to return. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or any of the epistle that's coming forward in this series, please send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.